Thank you, Josh. Thank you for leading us in worship this morning. I needed that. It was good. It was good to sing together. We're going to talk a little bit as we go about uh, how when we sing, we're declaring to one another uh, these great truths. And that was, uh, that was bomb for my soul this morning. Um, we're working through this idea of the redemption life. What does it mean to be a healthy disciple? Um, what does it mean to be a disciple here uh, at Redemption Church? These three key words, abide, grow, reach. Abide in Christ, grow in the church, and reach the community. Uh, last week, we started this idea of of what does it mean uh, to grow in the church? What does it mean to, to grow? Why do we grow as Christians? And uh, we looked at 1 Timothy 4, 6 to 10 last week. Paul makes this kind of parallel between training in physical attributes, working out and growing in holiness. And he says we ought to train ourselves for godliness, something we ought to strive for to, to work at. It's not something that happens just on its own. Um, so that kind of undergirds this idea of, of growing. Uh, this week, we want to ask, what about this in the church part? Did we just, did we just add that as extra words? Did we just add that because it alliterates with, with uh, Christ in community? No, it's intentional. It, it matters. This, this in the church is significant. Um, as, I, as I talk to people uh, around Olds and Didsbury in this area, one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm surprised to see here, I, I see here more than, more than I've seen anywhere else that I've been, uh, is people that will say, oh, I'm a Christian. Absolutely, I follow Jesus. I just don't do the church thing. That's just not, that's just not my thing. Yeah, I, uh, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus, but, but not the traditional church thing, not the, not the institutional church and I think that's a really dangerous place to be. And I think those people are missing out on God's greatest blessing and, and putting themselves, frankly, in a place of real spiritual danger. If you think about it, Paul parallels this, this physical fitness with spiritual fitness. He's calling us to train ourselves to godliness. What are the most effective fitness programs? What are the features that all of the best ones kind of have in common? The ones that are successful, what do they do? Well, I, I think if we're going to look at kind of modern trends, I, I think the one leading the charge right now is CrossFit. Uh, if I was a little bit cooler and a little bit richer, uh, I would definitely be into CrossFit. Um, year 2000, there were, there were 13 CrossFit gyms in California. It was this little kind of growing hub. Uh, today, there's 14,500 uh, around the world. Uh, their, their international competition this year, the big CrossFit competition, 500,000 athletes participating. According to their website, every continent, including Antarctica. I don't know how that works. I don't know if they have a penguin division. I don't even know if there's penguins in Antarctica, but they were represented. Um, it's a $4 billion enterprise. It's a big deal. Uh, and yeah, it's got like a unique kind of style to it and, and, and some particular benefits the way they do it. But I don't think that's their secret. I think the secret to CrossFit is the same thing that they're most criticized for from the outside. Uh, and, and that is, the statement is often made that it's, it's almost cult-like. Like, it's, it's really intense community. When you join CrossFit, you're part of us now. And, and before long, you know, all of their friends are CrossFit friends. And every weekend they're doing, you know, CrossFit things. And people just get, just get sucked in in a, in a powerful way. And it is powerful. You're no longer just 
me doing my thing. And, and when I you know, fail to meet my goals or fail to show up, it's no longer just kind of me quietly failing by myself. It's a, it's a community thing. If I don't show up, I have people calling saying, hey, hey, where were you this morning? I thought we were doing this together. Like, step up, let's go. Um, they're cheering you on. Um, and it's not just CrossFit. It's all over the place. I, I've never done Weight Watchers, but as I understand it, it's, it's a very similar thing. You get together every week for your weigh-in together, and everyone's there. They're cheering you on. Um, there's, there's that healthy peer pressure pushing you forward. Um, and, and it's interesting. Studies have shown that um, participants of, of Weight Watchers lose an average, uh, and this isn't Weight Watchers propaganda as far as I know, lose an average of twice as much as those who are just on a, on a doctor-guided program. Uh, does Weight Watchers have some great secret that doctors don't know about? I don't think so. I, I highly doubt it. Um, it's motivation. It's, it's that community aspect. Why? Well, the answer is because that's the way God made us. That's what we were created to be uh, as a communal people, relational people. Um, that's why God ordained the church. These fitness groups have not discovered something new. Um, we're not stealing wisdom from them. We're not, we're not looking out at CrossFit and saying, oh, the church can learn from that. Now, they, they've stumbled upon something that God created very intentionally and something the church has always known. Uh, it's just helpful to maybe see that at work in another context. So let's go to the source. Let's go to the foundation of wisdom and our authority for what the church ought to be. Um, let's look at God's word together. Um, turn with me in your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible on you, just go ahead and slip up your hand. One of our ushers will get one for you. We want you to have God's word uh, open in your lap. Um, again, I just want to say I have no authority. My authority begins and ends at, at this book, and, and I have no wisdom for you. Um, what I have comes from, from God's word, and, and if I misspeak, if I say something that's not here, I want you to be able to look down and say he's wrong because that's not what it says. Um, on the contrary, I hope as I speak, you'll be able to look down and say he's just saying what the scriptures already say. Um, let me read this passage for us. Hebrews chapter 10, looking at verses uh, 24 and 25. It says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as this is a habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the church. Thank you for this church and the community that you've drawn together here. God, we come to you in humility this morning, knowing our own weakness, our need for you, Lord, would you open our eyes? Would you help us to see your truth clearly? Would you give us soft hearts that are easily corrected, easily molded and shaped by your word? Father, I pray that you would speak through me this morning. God, you know my weakness better than I know my own weakness. I pray that you would overcome that and that you would be glorified in spite of your weak, stumbling servant this morning. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So looking at Hebrews 10, 
You want to grow in your faith? You want to be trained in godliness? I think the call is grow in the church. Be in the church. This, this is the place to be right here. That's God's design. Look at verse 24. The first thing I think we see in this passage is that we ought to encourage the believers. Let us consider how to stir up one another toward love and good works. We're not sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. It's, it's, a, it's a mystery that, that theologians and scholars like to, like to dig into and circle around. Um, some say it's Paul. Uh, Some think maybe Apollos. There's some other guesses out there, but they're all guesses. The book doesn't tell us. And uh, he does tell us uh, in uh, chapter 2, verse 3, that he was taught by apostles, which makes me think it's not Paul. Paul made a big deal of the fact that he was not taught by any of the apostles. Um, But it was someone who obviously had apostolic teaching, someone who was closely associated with the apostles. And it was written to a group of Jewish believers particularly a group of Jewish believers who were experiencing persecution for their faith. They, they were being challenged and endangered. If you look at Hebrews 12, verses 3 and 4, it tells us something about the audience. It says, Consider him, talking about Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So he's saying, look at Jesus who was, who was persecuted by sinners. And I know you're being persecuted. Don't give up. Hold strong. Keep, keep going. I, I, th- I think we can say from here, the persecution hadn't got to the point yet that, that people had been killed. Um, but the fact that he brings it up means it's, it's kind of on the table, right? I mean, it's not out of the question. Their lives were hard because of the gospel. Their lives were difficult um, they were discouraged. They were feeling weak. Some of them, it seems, were, were even tempted to just give up, just throw in the towel, or, or maybe, maybe just to be a closet Christian. Let's just, let's just do this privately. Nobody needs to know. So much of the book of Hebrews is, is dedicated to, to him reminding these believing Jews of the, the wonder of the new covenant, this, this glorious thing that Jesus has accomplished on the cross, and it's so much greater. So much better than this shadow of the old covenant that that pointed to it. And so that's what leads up to this. If you look at chapter 10, um, I'm not going to go through it, but but verses 1 to 18, he's just pointing to the glory of Christ. It's so much better than than this old system. And and verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away Sin And then verse 14, for by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so it's that kind of build up the, the new covenant is better. Christianity is better than this old covenant. And then verses 19, he starts to apply that. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, um, we have these three let us statements. Verse 22, let us drawn near with a pure heart and full assurance of faith, trust in Jesus. He offers this this forgiveness of sin, this hope, this absolute purity for all those who will repent of their sin and trust in him. Let us draw near with a pure heart and full assurance of faith. Verse 23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Hang on. It's going to be hard. Press on. Hold on tight. 
And then verse 24, here's this kind of practical help in doing it. The third, let us, let us consider how to stir up one another toward love and good works. Encourage the believers. I love how he turns this around, doesn't he? He, he switches the question without them even noticing. They're asking, is it worth it? This is hard. Should I keep going? Do I, do I get up to, to go to church? Do I, do I continue on in this? What's in it for me? Or is it just more hardship? And he says, encourage the believers. You should be there building others up, strengthening others. It's not just haphazardly either. He says, consider it. Think about it. Be intentional in in stirring one another up. Plan for it. Do you do that? Have you ever stopped and thought, what can I do to be an encouragement to the other believers around me? How can I build them up? How can I be spurring them on, as some translations put it? Do we make plans to do that? You know what I... I know that this person in the pew over here is having a rough week. I know they're struggling with something. How can I help them? Maybe I can just take them off for coffee this week. Maybe I can send them a text message and say, I'm praying for you. I care about you. God is good. God is faithful. Trust in Him. Is there a scripture passage that that has helped me in a particular time that, that I can pass on to them? And don't feel like you need to be some great giant in the faith to encourage another believer. Uh, and, and you don't need to have all the answers. You just don't. When I think back to some of my, my lowest times spiritually when I was struggling, the, the people who encouraged me the most, it wasn't great lofty words that I had never known. It was just people telling me again the same things that I knew to be true. Um, but to hear it again, to have somebody care enough to pull me aside and tell me again, God is faithful. God is sovereign. He does love you. He will work all things to the good of those who love him who are called according to his purposes. I don't know how. I don't have the details. I don't have God's view on history. But I know what he promises, and I know he's faithful to his promises. He is still God. He is still good. We ought to be that for one another. We ought to have those caring relationships. It's awkward. Shouldn't be, but it is. And we just need to push through that. We need to be willing to be awkward for the church. Is that a, is that a burden you're willing to, to bear? Terry was telling me just this last week about his boys going to the gym and lifting weights. And uh, they go there together, and and when the one is lifting, the other one is standing beside him, just pushing him on. Come on, come on, one more, one more. You can do it, one more rep, one more set. Don't stop, don't stop, don't stop. And he's banging on his back, like, do it, do it, do it. That's what we ought to be for one another is we're training for godliness. We're, We're cheering each other on. Do another rep. Keep going, keep loving, keep giving, keep forgiving. Keep bearing patiently, stirring one another up. And yet it's not only cheerleading. I think it is that. But that word stir up there also has a bit of an edge to it. It has the idea of of something that could be sharp or bitter. It could be translated prod or 
poke, uh, the idea of spur, I think that's what the NIV has. It's not always a comfortable experience either. There's this idea of encouraging toward holiness by, by correcting sin. Essentially, it comes back to this age-old question that, that Cain so arrogantly put to God, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is, yeah. Yeah, you kind of are. Hebrews 12 Verse 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There's motivation to strive for godliness. And then verse 15, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, and that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Do you hear the, the communal language there? We have this, this community responsibility. And it's not no one anywhere, it's the church. See to it that, that no one in the church, see to it that none of your brothers and sisters are getting tangled in bitterness. We can see that happening from the outside, can't we? It's not always that easy to see when we're the ones in it. It's tempting to justify it. It's tempting to embrace bitterness because, well, they hurt me and I deserve to be bitter back. But from the outside, we, we can see where that's going. To come in to a brother and say, don't, don't go there. You don't want to go down that road. Someone moving toward immorality. Or maybe like Esau, who was so, so short-sighted, he was so wrapped up in the things of this world, the, the here and now, that, that he sold the blessing of God for a meal. Prod one another, stir one another. Where's your, where's your heart at? Are you seeking after God? Spur them toward holiness. Look around you, church. This is us. Consider how to encourage these believers right here. To grow. And of course, in commanding us to, to stir one another up, to spur one another on, um, he's kind of subtly reminding us, isn't he, that, that we need it too? That maybe we need others to look in our lives and stir us and prod us, to encourage us when we're weak, even to point out sin in our lives when we're tempted or short-sighted. Look at Hebrews 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you, again, that communal responsibility there, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another. That again has, has the idea of encouragement, but also this loving confrontation. That none of you might be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful and it, it hardens us. What happens when we get off on our own? We begin to pull away and kind of do our own thing. We're separate from the church. We don't have people involved closely in our lives. We don't have other believers who are close enough to see our real authentic selves, we get hardened. 
we, we start to deceive ourselves. Sin, sin lies to us and we begin to believe it and then we begin to tell ourselves those same lies. And, and before you know it, your heart is hard and you've pulled back from God and you've gotten comfortable with your sin, even attached to your sin. It's a terrifying place to be. Don't, don't let yourself get there. Now, if you want to grow in the church, we need to encourage the believers. We need to be encouraged by the believers. Think about, plan to stir one another up toward love and good deeds, to, to put yourself in a place where others can, can do that in your life. Now, again, we just need to admit this is not popular. This is not comfortable, right? If you've got a, a wound, the, the, the reflex is to cover it, protect it, hide it. We don't want that to be seen. We don't want that to be prodded, but sometimes that's what the doctor needs to do to bring healing and growth. And particularly our kind of Alberta culture, right? It's, it's cowboy up. It's go go my own, and, and I would rather just suffer along in, in silence, and, and that's just pride, and it's folly. So how do we actually do this? Well, to some degree, we, we've done it here this morning already. As I mentioned, um, if you remember Ephesians 5, uh, we talked about this back in the spring, Ephesians 5, 18. Paul says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. We gather to worship like we have here this morning. Um, yes, we're, we're singing and making melody to the Lord in our heart. We're worshiping Him from the heart, but we're also declaring these truths to one another. We're expressing these things as, as what is true, and as we sing, the people around us hear that and we encourage one another. We build one another up. We need that. We're, we're declaring to one another, all I have is Christ. He lives reigning in power. He lives name above all names. Lamb of God in my place. Your blood poured out my sin erased. We're strengthened and encouraging one another as we stand together. That's, that's by design and that's, that's good for us. We need that. But I also don't think that that replaces those personal conversations, those personal relationships. I think these commands would be really hard to obey if the only time we ever saw other believers was, was here Sunday morning. We didn't have any other ongoing relationship outside of that. That's one of the reasons we make such a big deal of small group. If you just go through those one another commands through Scripture, you can Google that this afternoon. They're pretty easy to bring up. And just ask, how am I doing at that? Well, loving. Are we loving one another? Are we serving one another? Are we bearing one another's burdens? That's, that's hard to do Sunday morning. It's not impossible. I think it happens. It ought to happen. But I think there's a lot more to that. In small groups, we, we create this space. We call it an uncommon community, a place where where we come and apply God's word together to our own lives and, and to one another. Where we're vulnerable, we're honest with one another. Uh, creating a place where you know, I, can, I can look at Josh in the eye and say, Josh, I'm, I'm getting angry with my kids, quick. And I, can, you, can you pray for me in that? Can you ask me next week if I'm growing in that, if I'm pursuing holiness? I need that. Or where I can look Josh in the eye and say, Josh, are you loving your wife this week? Are you sacrificing for her? Are you caring for her? 
Are you loving her well? We need that. I need that. You need that. That's how we grow in the church, encouraging the believers. And verse 25 continues. First is encourage the believers and then engage the church. It says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. So that, that encouragement definitely includes this meeting together. So often, I mentioned these people who say, oh, I'm a Christian, I just, I just don't go to church, I don't do the, the church thing. They would say to me, well, I still get together with other believers, right? We still gather in homes, we do, you know, I do dinner together with other believers on a regular basis. We do a lot of this stirring one another up and, and typically they kind of get this kind of holier than thou air and we're, we're doing it like early church style. This is the way it was meant to be. We have these, these community groups doing, doing life together and dinner together and, and you know, there's, it's good. I mean, that sounds a lot like what we do with small groups. But when they say, you know, this whole institutional church, this, this North American construct of church, this big church idea, yeah, we reject that. We're, we're kind of doing, we're doing early church style, right? Um, I think they're wrong. I think this right here is exactly what is commanded in this passage. It's, it's not a North American construct. Now, we're in North America. And so some aspects of our church are North American. We sang in English. That's, that's a cultural thing. Um, we have North American music style. We have some North American ideas of what we think looks good or works well. But the way we do church ought to be very intentionally biblical. That's the idea. And, and, and that's what we're striving for. And, and actually, the, the seminary that I started at before I transferred to Louisville, when I explained to them how we do church leadership, I was laughed at. I was mocked. That won't work here. That's not North American. I know. I get that. Actually, the phrase that was used is, if you wanted to wear cowboy boots to the beach, I guess you could. But why? Why would you do eldership in the church? Well, if God handed me a pair of shoes and said, here are your beach-going shoes, then there are my beach-going shoes, and this is what is going to be best. I'm going to embrace it. And I think God's wisdom bears that out. Yeah, we, we do church leadership in a way that is archaic. We're not alone. Many, many churches do. But it's not North American. It's what the Bible teaches, and, and it's what all of our Great Commission Collective churches do across Canada, across the United States, but also in Nepal and Moldova and Jamaica and Liberia and Malaysia and Scotland. It's not a, it's not a cultural thing. We talk about, when we, we're going to talk more about that when we, when we go autonomous. We're going to be installing our own elders here locally, and we're going, to, we're going to dive deep into what is eldership and why do we do it the way we do, and I'll, I'll walk you through Scripture to, to see that. But here's the thing, this, this church, the way we do church like this, I think this is biblical. I don't think it's a new idea at all. Let me, let me show you the, the passage here in Hebrews is a great place to start. Um, it says, continue to meet together is just the habit of some. Remember, this was written to believing Jews. And I think there's a nuance there in the passage. Um, not neglecting to meet together. There's, there's a word that is kind of redundant, and so it doesn't get translated, but to meet yourselves together. 
And, and I think he's actually contrasting against their fellow Jews who have not come to Christ. They continue to meet together. You need to continue to meet yourselves together as the church. Now, the Jews met together on the Sabbath in a, in a synagogue every week. They came together in a building with a large hall where people would come and be seated. Each synagogue was led by a group of men called elders. They would sing together and then they would pray together. Uh, there would be a public reading of scripture and then one of the elders would preach. Does that sound familiar at all? Now, the Jews met on Saturday on the, on the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week. But never in scripture is it said that the Christians met on the Sabbath. We don't do Sabbath. Jesus is our Sabbath. You know, all of the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath is the only one not recommanded in the New Testament. Jesus is our rest. Now, I think we ought to rest. I think it's wise to rest. Don't get me wrong. But that principle has been shifted to Christ. But the Christians from the earliest day, they, they met on the first day of the week. They met on Sunday. Jesus rose from the grave on the first day of the week, the, the Sunday. John 20 makes a big deal of that. If you, if you read that carefully, he's paralleling the, the resurrection with creation at dawn. New light on the first day. And he's painting this picture. And actually that, that theme kind of carries out through Scripture. It shows up again through Ezekiel. But uh, Acts, tw- uh, Acts 2 Verses 1 and 2, the Feast of Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover, when the Holy Spirit came the first time. Where are they? They're all together in the upper room. What day is it? It's a Sunday. We do the math. Acts 20, verses 7 and 8, on the first day of the week, Sunday, when we were gathered together to break bread, there's communion. Paul talked with them intending to depart the next day. He's preaching a sermon. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. Let's go. Do you guys bring dinner? We're going to keep going. Um, and is there many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together? They're, they're having a church service, a lot like this. 1 Corinthians 16, 2. On the first day of the week, there's Sunday again. Each one of you is to put aside and, oh, sorry, each one of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collection when I'm coming. What's he saying? They're, they're banding together as churches to help out the Jewish church. And Paul's saying, take an offering every week. Put something aside. They did offering at their services. Crazy. That's like we do. It's not a coincidence. Revelation 1 verse 10, John is exiled by himself. He's on the island of Patmos. And he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like the trumpet. And then he, he gives the revelation of, of Christ. And he, he has no church. He's off by himself in exile. But he's set aside, not the Sabbath, but the Lord's Day. Sunday, the first day of the week. And you have the rest of the New Testament, uh, I think, kind of bears that out. Gives us instruction. Specifically, I think the book of 1 Timothy uh, is very clear. Um, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 Here's the purpose statement of the book of 1 Timothy. Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Here's, here's how to live as the church. And He warns about false teachers and false teaching. He tells us to have 
corporate prayer together. He gives specific detail about elders and deacons and the qualifications of an elder and of a deacon. And here's the the bar that they have to reach as far as character and how to care for the poor in the church. This is one that sometimes takes fire, but 1 Timothy 5, 17, 18, he explains, hey, pay your pastor. That's part of our offering. I love to preach. I've been called to preach. I would preach if I never made another dime doing it. I would not be able to stop, but my family likes to eat, and we have a really good relationship here. It works well as the church together. 2 Timothy is written a little more narrowly to Timothy. Here's how you lead the church, and the climax is chapter 4. Preach the word in season and out of season. What we do here Sunday morning, this service that we are in the middle of, is very, very similar to what Hebrews is commanding them to do. Don't neglect this. I get it. There are some small churches. There are some really small churches, smaller than this, simpler than this. We used to be a church smaller than this and simpler than this. There are some churches that meet in homes, particularly around the world in persecuted regions where it's just, you can't just buy a building and get together because then you've just painted a big target on yourselves and you're not going to get together the next week. Um, well, you will, but you'll be in glory. But is it a biblical church or is it, a, frankly, a lame excuse to not be part of a church? Is there corporate prayer? Is there singing? Is there preaching? Is there offering? Do you take the Lord's Supper together? Are there biblical elders overseeing it? Are you obeying the commands of Scripture to submit yourselves to the leaders put over you? Are you meeting together on the Lord's Day every week? Getting together for supper with Christian friends every now and then does does not make a church. That's not the same thing. It's great, it's healthy, it's admirable, but it's, but it's not the church. Scripture says engage the church, be a part of the church. That's, that's why we do membership. If we want to push that a little further down the road, that's just a way to say, this is my church. This is where I'm going to engage. I'm going to sign up for Redemption CrossFit. And if I'm not there Sunday morning, I'm not going to be surprised when somebody says, hey, I missed you. Where were you at? Are you still, are you still on program? Are we still working together here? Are we still growing? There's great benefit for that. Be a regular part of a biblical fellowship of believers. This this matters. We're a body. We're the church. And what we do here Sunday mornings is is not just kind of whatever we think is neat or whatever we think would work. Uh, It's not a North American invention. This This is very intentionally shaped by God's word. So let me encourage you, don't neglect this. Don't miss this. It would be to your detriment. It's not a secondary thing. You need to prioritize meeting together and encouraging one another. Now, I get it. You need to work a job. You need to feed your family. And there's some jobs, maybe the only option right now is one that that takes you away from, from church on Sundays sometimes. That's that's life in a fallen world. It's not perfect. But is the church a priority? I, again, look at, look at John, exiled by himself off on this island, and he's taking the Lord's day, set aside, he's praising God, he's in the Spirit. It doesn't replace church. I think, I think we're pretty sure if John had an option to be with the church, that's where he would have been, but, but it's what he had. He was making the best of it in his imprisonment. 
That's a very different thing than, well, it's just hard. You know, I'd like to go Sundays, but it's just, it's tricky sometimes. I'm tired some Sundays. Good. Come and rest at church with the believers and be strengthened and built up. Well, you know, kids, kids play sports on Sundays and, and, and you know, I just, we, we got them involved in this sport and, and every game is a Sunday. Listen to me, I love you. Quit that sport. I don't, it's an idol. It's, it's taking the place over obedience to God's word. Teach your kids that worshiping God and growing in the churches is more important than sports. Now, again, maybe there's, maybe there's a one-off. Maybe it's an odd thing happens every now and then. Um, this is not the law. This is not the, if, if you don't come three Sundays, if you miss three Sundays out of the year, then, then you're cut off. And I don't think you're going to heaven. That's not what we're talking about. This isn't legalism. This, is, this should be our love. This should be our desires. We're, as we're seeking to grow in Christ, we should be growing in the church. We should be loving this and benefiting together and enjoying it. I had a heartbreaking conversation with a father just a couple of months ago. One by one, his kids were graduating from high school and walking away from the church and walking away from the Lord. And he had tears in his eyes as he told me, John, we did everything we could. We did everything right. We did everything possible to bring up our kids in the church. But John, they're walking away from the church and they're walking away from the Lord and it breaks my heart. And, and maybe I was wrong. Maybe I should have said something, but I didn't have the heart to tell him. That over the last years of attending church with him, what, what I had seen was a family that was consistently gone. A family that consistently prioritized sports over church, that, that had a hockey game, that had a ski trip, that had a, you name it, they were away. What they communicated to their church was that church was an absolute priority as long as we didn't have something else planned. They communicated to their kids was that absolutely we will be in church every single Sunday unless there's something fun to do. And then we'll do that instead. And sadly, their kids learned that lesson very well. And they found fun things to do instead. Teach your kids, not, not just to come to church. This, not, this shouldn't be a drudgery and a duty, but, but to love the church. To love Christ and to love His church. You can't love Jesus without loving his bride. You can't be committed to Jesus without being committed to his bride. And like any good relationship, like love often is, there ought to be a heart there and a passion there and a desire there. But that desire sometimes just needs to give birth to discipline. And it's about priorities. I said before, my, my wife and I... Uh, since we were married, have only once decided to go to church. We decided when we were first married, we're going to church. And it was set every week. We, we don't go to bed on Saturday night wondering, tomorrow morning, should we go to church or not? That, that decision's been made. That's a priority that's been set. It, it doesn't change. That's just what we do. It's, it's on the calendar. And so as we were driving home a couple of weeks ago, we, we saw a sign when these small towns where I read, I think it was Pinocchio, and they had a sign. They're, they're showing Incredibles too. It's a, a free family event. Awesome. We want to see that. We want to take the kids. We don't want to spend money. We're going to go to this thing. What's the time? Oh, it's at uh, 1030 Sunday morning. 
Sorry, you're too late. Um, we're not going to go. We can't make it. Now, we could have said, ah, oh, shucks. I wanted to go to church that week, but The Incredibles is showing. Or we can say, oh, I would have liked to see The Incredibles, but we're going to church. That's our priority. Which, which one wins? And so as friends and family say, hey, we're all having a big get-together uh, Sunday. Awesome. I'll see you there about 1230. We'll love you. We'll be there. But we have plans already. We have something on the calendar. And you say, well, that's easy for you to say you're the pastor. It's your job to be here. And Well, you're kind of right. Um, but that's not always been the case. We, we lived that out. We have four years. Well, I was in seminary. Full-time student, working my tail off, working three-quarter time, shoveling concrete with Josh and Airdrie. I was exhausted. My schedule was beyond full. We had three kids and then four kids under the age of five. It was a 25-minute drive from Cochrane to Harvest Calgary where we were attending. But it just wasn't a conversation. We woke up on Sunday morning. We got everyone ready. And, and yeah, if, if the kids weren't throwing up everywhere, we were going to church. And I think I can count on one hand over four years the amount of times the blizzard was actually bad enough that we had to turn around and come home again and couldn't make it. And again, I don't say this to congratulate myself, but to spur you on, to stir you up. Don't don't let those excuses come in. And it's really easy just to think, well, you know, there's no other choice. It's below zero today. I can't go. Uh, There's no other choice. I was up late. I can't go. Just, Just go. Just prioritize it. It's not easy, but it's about prioritizing what's important. And it's crucial to our spiritual growth. We love to be in church. We love to be in the fellowship of the saints and the community of the believers. We love to be encouraged and spurred on in our faith. So as we gather week after week, let me just encourage you as we sing together and pray together and hear from God's word together. We need this. It's God's design that we be encouraging the believers and and encouraged by the believers and engaged in the church. That's for our good and his glory. And then finally, the last portion of verse 25, the call here that just kind of wraps it together, that gives us our our motivation and our drive. Envision eternity. Encourage the believers, engage the church, and envision eternity. He says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So there's there's this urgency, this buildup. There's a a drive and a passion that grows here all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day in your translation is probably capitalized. That's because it's not just any day. It's not just some day. It's the day. Everyone knows what day He's talking out particularly these Jews because the day of the Lord was a common theme through the Old Testament. It was almost always referring to the day of judgment, the day that God would punish the wicked. It was a day of reckoning. Isaiah 2.12, the Lord of hosts has a day. And against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low. Isaiah 13, 9 to 11, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. 
I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp and the arrogant. Lay low the pompous pride of root, sorry, the pompous pride of ruthlessness, of the ruthless. So why the day of the Lord? How, how is this a positive thing? That sounds a, a horrible thing. It's God's judgment is coming against sinners and, and we're sinners. But of course, these were given as hope for Israel. Israel was God's chosen people. And these statements are made of, of God saying, the day is coming and I will punish those who persecute you. The righteous Jesus will one day reign, that God would set all things right. Now, these words are being used, sadly, now against many in the children of Israel who had rejected God's Messiah, who had rejected his hope of salvation. But these words are still hope for all who trust in Christ. This is, this is where the old covenant and the new covenant come climaxing together as Israel was called to look forward to the Messiah and we're told to look back to the Messiah, the one who died for our sins that we can be, that we can be saved through this day of judgment. So the day of judgment is a great hope for us. A hope that, that all things will be set right. I hope that those who, who persecute us and hate us, those who, those who are opposed to what is right and true and good, will face the true judge. Jesus wins. He's, he's coming back. He's going to overturn evil. He's going to punish the wicked. And of course, he's going to comfort his children. He's going to dry every tear from their eyes and bring final salvation for those who hope in him. And the call here is that we would keep that day in view remembering this world is not the end. This is, this is not all there is. Jesus is coming back both to punish those who reject him, but to reward those who live for him. The, the race is nearly over. The day is drawing near. It's, it's not a moving target. Acts 17, 31 tells us God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. It's fixed. It's on the calendar. It's not It's not moving. And that means that we're closer today than we were yesterday. We're closer now at the end of this service than we were at the beginning. And that knowledge, that, that envisioning of the future, setting our eyes on that ought to drive us to holiness, ought to spur us on to godliness. Listen to 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3. John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. He's looking forward to, to glory. He says, but, when, but we know that when he appears, there's the day. When he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. Now listen to this. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. As we're looking forward to that day, as we're anticipating that great day, then we ought to be purifying ourselves, growing in holiness, growing together as the church, striving toward that. Romans 13, uh, verses 11 and 14, makes the same argument. Listen carefully. He says, Besides this, you know that the time, the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. He's looking forward to that final salvation, the day. It's nearer now than we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness. 
Put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Salvation. Our final salvation is, is nearer now than when we first believed. It's coming. So why would you be tempted by sin? Why would we be weak and faltering now? Why would you give up now? If you're running a race, you might be tempted when you, when you start or maybe halfway through to think, boy, I, I better save my energy. I better pace myself. There's a, there's a long way to go. I want to be able to make it to the end. I want to I reserve something for later. But if you know the finish line is just around the corner, if you know that, that the end is, is near, it's basically upon you, what do you do? You spend it. You fearlessly run. You, you, you go sprint the last bit. You spend all of your energy to get there. That's how we're called to run this race. And you say, John, life is long. It's hard. It's, I can't see the finish line from here. It's not long. It's a glimpse. It's a split second in the scope of eternity. And God said his grace will carry us through to the end. That's the passion, the zeal that we ought to be living in as we encourage one another, as we engage the church. Yeah, it's going to be hard. It's going to, it's going to require sacrifice. Your friends are going to think you're weird. But who cares? It's all going to be over soon. In a, in a moment, we'll be across the finish line. We'll say with Isaiah, I see the Lord exalted and lifted high. We'll be with him. And then what will it matter? What will anything matter except that we've spent ourselves for Christ, that we'll be able to look back without regret and say, I, I, I left it all. I had this unflagging love and obedience to him. Can you see that day? Are you running for that day? I'll close the words of Paul from Thessalonians. Josh, you can come on up. It's a long section, but I think Paul says it better than I could, obviously. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need for anyone, for anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and there is security and then suddenly destruction will be upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you, you are not in the darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For we who sleep, those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and, a, and for the helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. And whether we are awake or asleep, we might live for him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Church, set your eyes on that day. It's coming. It's going to come like a thief in the night when nobody expects, when nobody is looking, but it doesn't have to shock us. It doesn't have to be a surprise for us. The surprise of the finish line is nothing but joy for the runner that is running at his full speed. Be ready. Be growing in the church. Be building one another up just as you are doing.